Welcome to the FinTech in Focus series. Uh, I'm Matt O'Callaghan, head of our financial services practice in Asia. And today you're joining us for a discussion on paying cross-border, which is our third session in the series and we'll focus on cross-border payments. Our first two podcasts looked at digital identity and open banking. I'm joined today by Stefan Packinger, a partner in our Vienna office, a capital markets expert by training, who has been an invaluable part of our global fintech group. Hi, Stefan. Hello, everyone. I'm also joined by Charlotte Witherington, a senior associate in our financial services practice in London, who is one of our payments experts. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, everyone. So in simpler times, when the 2009 financial crisis was on top of us, shadow banking was one of the many elements that almost brought the financial system to its knees. Since that time, there was a significant effort to re-regulate certain aspects of banking, in particular for leverage and lending. That created an opportunity for many firms to emerge with alternate payment channels and to invest in areas that the banks did not have the time nor the resources to invest in. One of the consequences of that underinvestment has been the decline in correspondent banking and the speed, cost, transparency and access for cross-border payments failing to progress with an interconnected world that was rapidly evolving. The G20 recognised all of this and realised the significance of the challenges ahead and tasked the FSB or the Financial Stability Board with the job of removing some of these impediments and finding solutions. Before we go in to the global and local initiatives, let's take a step back and describe what we mean by cross-border payments and why they're so important. Stefan? Thanks, Matt. Cross-border payments is essentially about financial transactions where uh, the pay and the recipient are based in separate countries. Cross-border payments, by definition, have challenges, one being different currencies that uh, will have to be addressed there's different layers and different parties involved in cross-border payments depending on the type of payment. You may want to think about correspondent banking where you channel and transfer payments through a number of credit institutions. If you look at credit card payments, there's the typical parties uh, involved in the settling of a credit card payment. And there's new developments like money wallets or other instruments that come to play in a cross-border context. And since we are lawyers, uh, last but not least, there's legal implications associated with this because the landscape is fragmented and even more so on a global scale. But why do cross-border payments really matter? Charlotte, give us your thoughts. Thank you very much, Stefan. Um, so there are a number of key global trends with, which come together to make this a significant and fast growing market. So globalisation, supply chains, expansion across borders, e-commerce expansion. And the reasons why it's so difficult to get cross-border payments right are very varied. So by definition, they're more complex than purely domestic ones because they involve numerous intermediaries, time zones, jurisdictions and regulations. So issues include fragmented data standards, lack of interoperability, complexities in meeting compliance requirements, other issues like capital control, different operating hours across time zones, legacy technology platforms, and very long, long transaction chains. But Matt, what's being done uh, on an international level to improve cross-border payments? 
Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, all of those issues that you highlighted, Charlotte, and, and the complexity uh, are why the, the FSB has been tasked with um, coming up with a roadmap for finding a way through to, you know, to, to make faster payments, make them cheaper, make them more transparent, improve the access, and all of those sort of factors why the, the roadmap's been put together. Uh, if you look at the challenges and, and the way they've thought about it, the, their focus areas, you can largely be boiled down to you know, that public and private sector divide uh, and how they're going to both need to cooperate and work together in order to come up with new solutions. Uh, and that includes the coordination amongst regulatory and supervisory bodies as well. But, but also just, just trying to get a better understanding as to how the data and the, the market practices flow, because they're incredibly nuanced. If you start to break them apart, it gives us the opportunity to create new payment infrastructures that, that could be solutions to, to many of these challenges that have come up. Interestingly, though, we thought that the FSB paper probably wasn't the, the best place for us to start. And we thought that the EU's retail payment strategy provided a really good proxy of some of the solutions that would be available. It was created around four pillars. Uh, we, and, I, and I think today, like for the purpose of what we're talking about, it's really the first and the fourth pillar that are most relevant to us. So maybe just starting with digital payments and the future of money. Stefan, do you want to run us through some of the European initiatives that are you know, sort of paving the way for, for how this can, can look in a couple of years' time? Sure, happy to do so. The future of money is very interesting and there's a number of developments ranging from crypto assets, stable coins, but most importantly, and which is clearly one of the focus area within the European Union and by the European Central Bank is the digital euro. That's a project that has been consulted with stakeholders and there will be a critical decision coming up this July whether to pursue and how to implement this. What's fascinating about this is that the central bank takes a very proactive role about establishing a substitute to cash and banknotes. In response to market developments, the central bank clearly recognizes that payments are increasingly digital and there's the clear intention to allow and facilitate new technology in implementing such a digital euro. What has been interesting is that privacy aspects are the key driver area of concern. That was one of the results of, of the consultation. And that is how much visibility the central bank should have in the context uh, of issuing a digital euro. But not only the European Union is looking at this. Charlotte, can you give us your perspective on what's happening in the UK? Absolutely. Thank you very much, Stefan. So similarly in the UK, uh, the Bank of England and HM Treasury um, have just set up a task force to explore the feasibility of introducing a retail CBDC. There was also a recent paper from the Bank of England on crypto assets and stablecoins generally, which considered a synthetic CBDC as well. And last, the Bank of England, along with, I think, a number of central banks around the world, have been participating in the Bank of International Settlement Initiatives about cross-border CBDCs, so NCBDCs. But I know that Asia is very much a front runner in that. So, Matt, over to you for that perspective. Yeah, I mean, there's been a range of initiatives around Asia that we've seen. And, you know, China has taken a number of steps in, in order to develop a CBDC product uh, and a retail CBDC product at that. It, it already has 2 billion yuan uh, already on issuance. Uh, and there's there's wide suggestions that it, it will be included in the uh, 2022 Winter Olympics 
uh, as, as a means of allowing visitors to be able to access the currency. I think, you know, if, if we look across the board, though, I mean, there's a number of initiatives in Singapore and Hong Kong. Thailand has joined up and is very much at the forefront of the CBDC initiative to create bridges between each of the central banks. And I think it's going to be those bridges between central banks that are going to be key to, to ease this flow of our cross-border payments so that we can have correspondent banks or whatever the new payment infrastructure is going to allow for to be able to help with those linkages. And, and, you know, Charlotte, as you mentioned, I think the MCBDC system is, is a little bit more nuanced in Asia because we don't have that sort of that common language. We don't have that sort of common legal framework that sort of pins the region together. And so there are going to have to be trade-offs around um, how CBDC and these bridges are developed to ensure that there is still the flexibility around monetary policy and financial stability and also just the, the sort of payment policies that each of those central banks need to be able to implement. I think what's quite exciting about Asia, though, is we do have this proliferation of payment firms that are catering to a large number of the unbanked. And so, you know, the, the notion of being able to you know, create alternative payment channels and to really sort of drive some of that growth that's coming through Southeast Asia and, and up into the northern parts of Asia, there's a huge demand for faster cheaper and, and more intuitive forms of payment. Uh, and so I think that all the drivers are there from the participant side. I think we've, we've got the central banks already engaged in this and you know the impetus is there for, the, for those changes. So I, I think that does sort of present um, the right environment for this. What's really interesting though is, is if, if you look at each of the national uh, jurisdictions, that they're also doing a lot of work around instant payments. Stefan, what, what does that look like in Europe? That is a very critical and key element the European Commission has identified to tackle. It is about payments that are effected and implemented within seconds. And it is very much about implementing uh, what's referred to as the SEPA Instant Credit Transfer Scheme that has been introduced and developed already back in 2017 and is now the subject matter of an ongoing consultation and whether or not this technical scheme to effect payments within seconds shall become mandatory applicable. Similarly, there is a separate proxy lockup concept that should facilitate payments without having to exchange payment information. The European Union is currently looking in, into and that is the underlying means to facilitate really effective payments within a very short time frame and forms part of the, the currently ongoing consultation in this respect. Maybe over to you, Charlotte, briefly on competitive and innovative aspects in the payment landscape the authorities are looking at. So the innovation and competition angle, that's really covered by open banking. Uh, and we've got a previous podcast uh, focusing entirely on open banking, so we won't repeat ourselves, but rather direct you to that podcast. Pillar three, which is about what the regulators mean by efficient and interoperable payment systems and, and other support infrastructures. I think pillar three, really interesting uh, because interoperability is an absolute key focus for the FSB. It's called for the adoption of a harmonised ISO um, 222 common language um, uh, and, and version for message formats. 
And once I think that's adopted, it will really open up opportunities for interoperability between platforms, which will be a key point in opening up cross-border payments. But uh, over to pillar four, which is really about how we ensure efficient international markets. And what does that look like, Stefan, from an EU perspective? Thanks, Charlotte. I think it's very similar what you have touched upon. It's about ensuring that uh, linkages are workable in practice. It is about sort of adopting the ISO 2020 standard on a European level and ensuring that these linkages are abridged and there is no legal gap which causes an obstacle. It is equally about opening the European framework, such as in the context of the Settlement and Finality Directive, to payment services provider and e-money providers, so that there's really a level playing field uh, within the European Union, and thereby also ensuring that this is open and amendable for in an international context. These are focus areas within the Pillar 4, addressing international payments. Another aspect in that respect is the area of remittances to facilitate and allow that remittances are implemented within the SEPA uh, or a similar standard on a European level. So in a nutshell, the international angle is tapped by the European Commission through a number of focus areas addressing international payment means and the work of those with a view to harmonizing and thereby ensuring that fragmentation is abolished. The technical means to implement those payments is one aspect, but another aspect is in relation to AML and other requirements. Matt, do you want to give us your perspective on this topic from an FSB slash Asian perspective? Yeah, I mean, AML is just another one of the checks in the path to completing a cross-border payment. And I think what's been particularly challenging is there is an inconsistency in terms of how different jurisdictions have implemented AML legislation at a national level. We have seen over the years this sort of growing concept of equivalence and trying to recognise equivalent jurisdictions under that FATF banner. But what's really pleasing to see is that the FATF have joined this initiative and, and they have you know, recently concluded at works well, earlier in the year, they concluded a consultation on some of the impediments at the national level that are impeding cross-border payments. And I think once we see the output of that consultation, it will be a really good marker of some of those changes that need to happen uh, in the AML framework in order to smooth out and to reduce some of those blocks within the system. Maybe the other aspect of AML is, you know, I think within the new payment infrastructure that there just needs to be a better way of tagging and tying identity. And, and, you know, in the same way that Charlotte was able to tie back our second podcast in the series, I think the first podcast in the series about developing a digital identity is going to be really key in terms of like smoothing out this cross-border payment channel. And it's important that we do find a common language to talk about how we can attach identities to money flows to help with that process. So in terms of the impact for firms, I mean, Charlotte, you've talked about some of those aspects, but where are the real sort of impacts that our clients need to be aware of? I think there are sort of four kind of big topics. So the growth of cross-border payments obviously creates lots of opportunities for current players and new entrants. And especially, I think lots of fintechs are currently trying to solve for some of the existing problems. 
data is another sort of big topic, in particular, the sort of opportunity to, to store payment information and use tokenization to facilitate recurring transactions, big data insights into transaction frequency, devices, locations, I think in a cross-border context, all, all very interesting. Compliance is another big area, um, as is profitability. And in particular, there was a recent McKinsey report on how even a $1 transaction could be profitable uh, soon in the future. But Stefan, um, some of the kind of commercial opportunities for our clients as the regulatory landscape shifts. That's a difficult one, but I'm more than happy to give it a try. I think there is two big themes that present opportunities. One is technological innovation, and that is evidenced by the number of specialized companies developing uh, new business models using tech and alternative means to facilitate payments. And the second lever, so to speak, or pillar is customer <clears throat> behavior. The acceptance of tech-supported payments has grown dramatically. We all pay online. There's little or not that much concern about these type of payments anymore and people become used and accustomed to making cross-border electronic payments. So I think technological innovation and consumer behaviors present the biggest opportunities for cross-border payments. And what will be very interesting to see how much the legal framework will be leveraged from a business perspective and whether it is incremental value that you operate within an established legal framework. So lots of interesting opportunities, but let me pause here and head over to Matt to give us his closing perspective, I'm inclined to say. Thanks, Stefan. And Charlotte, it's been, been fantastic joining you on a discussion uh, around the topic. Uh, I think, as we mentioned earlier, the imperative for change is here. And, and the recent BIS annual report really underscores the need to consider digital cash in the form of CBDCs as one of those parts out. We can see that the existing payment infrastructure is unacceptably slow and expensive, uh, as well as overly reliant on manual processes. So whilst there is a path out, I think the way out is not particularly simple. We need enormous levels of cooperation across both public and private sectors. We need to develop a common language. And whilst you know ISO 222 goes part of the way there, developing that and expanding it out so that we can have a clear communication channel between CBDCs and regulated stable coins and, and fiat currency, that's all going to be incredibly important to smoothing through those payment channels and making sure that we, we can find a way in which we can either bring SWIFT up to speed or develop new ways and infrastructures for being able to communicate across border. And transparency and above all, any new infrastructure really needs to earn the trust of all of the participants in the system for that to work. And that's going to be something that can only be proven out through time and by having the robust regulation, which Stefan referred to. So thank you for joining us today. We, we hope that you took something away useful um, out of our discussions. We'd love to hear from our clients on their own perspectives and ideas for future podcasts. So please do get in touch. Freshfields produces a range of podcasts, which are available where you find all good podcasts. But until next time, it's a farewell from me, Stefan and Charlotte. Bye-bye.